Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for January 31, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, we have an article relating to the war in the Middle East. Headline is, Disguised Israeli Troops Raid West Bank Hospital. Three Palestinian militants killed in targeted attack. Israeli forces, disguised as civilian women and medics, stormed a hospital Tuesday in the occupied West Bank, killing three Palestinian militants in a dramatic raid that underscored how deadly violence has spilled into the territory from the war in Gaza. The Palestinian health ministry said Israeli forces opened fire inside the Ibn Sina hospital in the West Bank town of Jenin. A hospital spokesperson said there was no exchange of fire, indicating it was a targeted killing. Israel's military claimed the militants were using the hospital as a hideout without providing evidence. Security camera footage from the hospital shows about a dozen undercover forces, most of them armed, wearing Muslim headscarves, hospital scrubs, or white doctor's coats. One carried a rifle in one arm and a folded wheelchair in the other. Netanyahu rejects key demands from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. While, meanwhile, does that make any sense? Netanyahu rejects key demands. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, meanwhile, ruled out a military withdrawal from Gaza or the release of thousands of jailed militants. Hamas made two demands for any ceasefire, casting doubt on the latest efforts to end a war that has destabilized the broader Middle East. Netanyahu, speaking at an event elsewhere in the West Bank, denied reports of possible ceasefire deal to end the war in Gaza and repeated his vow to keep fighting until Israel achieves, quote, absolute victory, close quote, over Hamas. We will not end this war without achieving all of our goals, said Netanyahu, who is under mounting pressure from families of the hostages and the wider public to reach a deal. We will not withdraw the Israeli military from the Gaza Strip, and we will not release thousands of terrorists, he said. Hamas' political t- top political leader, Ismail Haniyeh, said Tuesday the group was studying the latest terms for a deal, but the priority was the, quote, full withdrawal, close quote, of Israeli forces from Gaza, and any agreement should lead to a long-term ceasefire. He said Hamas leadership was invited to Cairo to continue talks. The militant group, which has reached lopsided exchange deals with Israel in the past, is expected to demand the release of thousands of Palestinian prisoners, including high-profile militants, in exchange for the remaining hostages. Qatar and Egypt, which mediate with Hamas, held talks with Israel and the United States in recent days. U.S. officials said negotiations made progress toward a deal, including the phased release of the remaining hostages over a two-month period and the entry of more humanitarian aid into Gaza. The war in Gaza began when hundreds of Hamas-led militants stormed into southern Israel 
killing about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and abducting about 250 others. Hamas released more than 100 during a week-long ceasefire in November in exchange for 240 Palestinians imprisoned by Israel. Israel's offensive has killed more than 26,700 people in Gaza, according to the health ministry in the Hamas-run territory. The ministry count does not distinguish between fighters and civilians, but says about two-thirds of the dead are women and minors. A strike on a residential building in the central town of Deir al-Bala on Tuesday killed 11 people, including four children, according to Associated Press reporters who saw the bodies at a hospital. The war has leveled vast swaths of the tiny coastal enclave, displaced 85% of its population, and pushed a quarter of our residents to starvation. Israel has come under heavy criticism for its raid on hospitals in Gaza, which have treated tens of thousands of Palestinians wounded in the war and provided critical shelter for displaced people. Gaza's health care system, which was already feeble before the war, is on the verge of collapse, buckling under the scores of patients as well as a lack of fuel and medical necessities because of Israeli restrictions and fighting in and near the facilities. The Palestinian Red Crescent said Israeli forces raided the Alamal Hospital in the southern Gaza city by Khan Unis on Tuesday, where about 7,000 displaced people were sheltering. The rescue service said Israel tank, Israeli tanks lined up outside the hospital, fired live ammunition and smoke grenades at the people inside. Raid Al-Nims, a spokesperson for the aid group, said everyone was ordered to evacuate. The Israeli military said, without elaborating, that its forces were operating in the area of the hospital, but not inside it. Violence in the West Bank has also surged since October 7, as Israel has cracked down on suspected militants, killing more than 380 Palestinians, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Most were killed in confrontations with Israel force, Israeli forces during arrest raids or violent protests. Israel captured the West Bank, along with Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem, in the 1967 Mideast War. Israel withdrew troops and settlers from Gaza in 2005, but imposed a stifling blockade on the territory, along with Egypt, <clears throat> when Hamas came to power in a violent takeover in 2007. It maintains an open-ended occupation of the West Bank, where more than half a million Israelis now live in settlements. The Palestinians claim these territories as a part of their future independent state, hopes for which have increasingly dimmed since the war began. Also on the front page, an article entitled Nitrogen executions may gain traction across the country. Alabama's first ever use of nitrogen gas for an execution could gain traction among other states and change how the death penalty is carried out in the United States, much like lethal injection did more than 40 years ago, 
according to experts on capital punishment. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall said Friday that the execution of Kenneth Eugene Smith, a 58-year-old convicted of a 1988 murder for hire, went off as planned, and his office is ready to help other states if they want to begin nitrogen executions. Alabama has done it, and now so can you, Marshall said in a news conference. At least some prison officials in other states say they hope to closely analyze how the process worked in Alabama and whether to replicate it in their states. Oklahoma and Mississippi already have laws authorizing the use of nitrogen gas for executions, and some other states, including Nebraska, have introduced measures this year to add it as an option. Ohio's Republican Attorney General Dave Yost put his weight behind a legislative effort Tuesday that would bring nitrogen gas executions to the state, ending a years-long unofficial death penalty moratorium. Our intentions are, if this works, and it's humane, and we can, absolutely we'll want to use it, said Stephen Harp, director of Oklahoma's prison system. After being outfitted with a mask that forced him to breathe pure nitrogen and deprived him of oxygen, Smith shook and writhed on the gurney for at least two minutes during Thursday night's execution at an Alabama prison before his breathing stopped and he was declared dead. Alabama Corrections Commissioner John Q. Ham described Smith's shaking as involuntary movements and said nothing was out of the ordinary during the procedure. That was all expected and was in the side effects that we've seen or researched on nitrogen hypoxia, Ham said. Harp and his chief of staff, Justin Ferris, who rewrote Oklahoma's lethal injection protocols after a botched execution in 2014, already have traveled to Alabama to see the equipment corrections officials obtained for the nitrogen execution and to study its protocols. We want to see how well it works, how fast it works, and how efficient it is, Ferris said. I think the nation, as far as correctional entities, is watching this to see how it's done. The United States has a long history of developing methods of execution that quickly become widely adopted, starting with electrocution in the early 1900s to replace hangings, followed by the gas chamber and ultimately lethal injection, which was developed by an Oklahoma doctor in the 1970s. The switch to nitrogen gas could be the next method to gain popularity, said Austin Surratt, a law professor at Amherst College, who has written extensively about botched executions and the death penalty. This is a chapter in a long-running story in the United States, Surratt said. Since the late 1900s, the United States has been on a quest to find a method of execution that would be a kind of technological magic bullet and would ensure that executions would be safe, reliable, and humane. Why are we on that quest? Because we want to have the death penalty, but we want to be able to say the death penalty is not cruel. Oklahoma was the first state to contemplate the use of nitrogen gas nearly a decade ago, after the 2014 botched execution of Clayton Lockett, who clenched his teeth, moaned and writhed on the gurney, before a doctor noticed a problem 
with the intravenous line and the execution was called off before Lockett died, 43 minutes after the procedure began. A later investigation revealed the IV had become dislodged and the lethal chemicals were pumped into the tissue surrounding the injection site instead of into his bloodstream. Numerous other states, including Alabama, <clears throat> have had problems for years administering lethal injection or obtaining the deadly drugs, particularly as manufacturers, many of them based in Europe, have objected to their drugs being used to kill people and prohibited their sale to corrections departments or stopped manufacturing them altogether. Even as some death penalty states remain committed to pursuing the executions, capital punishment is undergoing a years-long decline of use and support, and more Americans now believe the death penalty is being administered unfairly, according to a recent annual report. A majority of states, 29, have either abolished the death penalty or paused executions, and there were just 24 executions carried out in five states in 2023. According to the Washington, D.C.-based Death Penalty Information Center, more states have abolished the death penalty since 2007 than in any other comparable 17-year period in American history, Surratt noted. This national consideration is not just being driven by moral qualms. It is being driven by the sense that it's a broken system. Ryan Kiesel, a former Oklahoma legislator and civil rights attorney who fought against Oklahoma's efforts to approve nitrogen gas as then director of the state chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, said the continued push for a new method is a futile attempt by states to sanitize a violent act. Perhaps instead of trying to move to more and more palatable ways, palatable ways of killing someone, if a state wants to have a death penalty, they should have a method that reflects the violent act that execution is, Kiesel said. If we can't stomach it, we shouldn't do it. And now on page two, we find an article entitled Space Shuttle Endeavor Hoisted for Display in Launch Configuration at Los Angeles Science Museum. NASA's retired space shuttle Endeavour was carefully hoisted late Monday and attached to a huge external fuel tank and its two solid rocket boosters at a Los Angeles museum where it will be uniquely displayed as if it is about to blast off. A massive crane delicately moved the orbiter, which is 122 feet long, and has a 78-foot wingspan into the partially built Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center at the California Science Center in Exposition Park. Crews then attached Endeavor, covered in a protective wrapping, to the tank in a process that lasted into the pre-dawn hours on Tuesday. The building will be completed around Endeavor before the display opens to the public. This is a huge morning for us now, said Jeffrey N. Randolph Rudolph, president and CEO of the Science Center, who estimated it will take up to two years to finish the project. The scale of it is something that really amazes people, he said. 
Everyone who sees it, even those who've seen the shuttle before, they say, wow. The 20-story tall display stands atop an 1,800-ton concrete slab supported by six so-called base isolators to protect Endeavour from earthquakes. All parts of the vertical launch configuration are authentic components of the shuttle system, including the rust-colored external tank, which was flight-qualified. It's incredible, said Larry Clark, a veteran NASA contractor who spent nearly his whole career as a shuttle engineer and is a consultant to the Science Center's project. It brings back a lot of memories for me, he said. You know, I saw every space shuttle on the launch pad that ever flew as I worked on the launch pad, and to stand here and see it again like this is kind of melancholy. Clark described the work completed early Tuesday as a soft mate. The attachments will be further tightened on Wednesday. Endeavour flew 25 missions between 1992 and 2011 when NASA's shuttle program ended. The shuttle was flown to Los Angeles International Airport in 2012 atop a NASA Boeing 747 and then created a spectacle as it was inched through tight city streets to Exposition Park. The external tank arrived by barge and made a similar trip across the city. The shuttle initially was displayed horizontally in a temporary exhibit hall. A groundbreaking ceremony for the Air and Space Center was held in 2022 on the 11th anniversary of Endeavour's final return from space. The process of assembling the shuttle system in vertical configuration was dubbed Go for Stack, an infernal, informal term for putting together rocket components for launch. It began in July with precise installation of the bottom segments of the side boosters, known as aft skirts for the first time outside of a NASA facility. In use, the boosters would be attached to the external tank to give the shuttle's main engines liftoff. The 116-foot-long rocket motors were trucked to Los Angeles from the Mojave Desert in October and installed the following month. In addition to completing the building, about 100 other aircraft and spacecraft will be installed along with numerous interpretive exhibits, Rudolph said. About $360 million of the $400 million cost was raised. In all, NASA operated five shuttles in space. Shuttle Challenger was lost, and its crew of seven died in a launch accident January 28, 1986. Columbia broke apart during reentry on February 1, 2003, killing all seven on board. Retired shuttles Atlantis and Discovery and the test ship Enterprise, which did not go to space, are on display across the country. Atlantis is at Kennedy Space Center, Florida, where it is displayed as if in orbit, with its payload doors open and robotic arm extended. Discovery rests on its landing gear at the National Air and Space Museum's Stephen F. 
Udvarhesi Center in Chantilly, Virginia. Enterprise, which was released from a carrier aircraft for approach and landing test, is displayed at the Intrepid Museum in New York. And now on page three in National and World News, we find an article entitled Trump Allowed on Ballot. Panel says it lacks the authority to remove him over a Capitol riot. Illinois Election Board kept former President Donald Trump on the state's primary ballot Tuesday, a week before the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments on whether the Republicans' role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol disqualifies him from the presidency. The board's unanimous ruling came after its hearing officer, a retired Republican judge, found that a preponderance of the evidence shows Trump is ineligible to run for president because he violated a constitutional ban on those who engaged in insurrection from holding office. Still, the hearing officer recommended the board let the courts make the decision. The eight-member board, composed of four Democrats and four Republicans, agreed with a recommendation from its lawyer to let Trump remain on the ballot because it didn't have the authority to determine whether he violated the U.S. Constitution. Board member Catherine McCrory prefaced her vote with a statement, I want it to be clear that this Republican believes that there was an insurrection on January 6. There's no doubt in my mind that he manipulated, instigated, aided, and abetted an insurrection on January 6. However, McCrory said she agreed the board doesn't have jurisdiction to enforce that conclusion. An attorney for the voters who objected to Trump's presence on the ballot said they'd appeal to Cook County Circuit Court. What's happened here is an avoidance of a hot potato issue, attorney Matthew Pierce told reporters after the hearing. I get the desire to do it, but the law doesn't allow you to duck. The issue will likely be decided at a higher court, with the U.S. Supreme Court scheduled to hear arguments next week in Trump's appeal of a Colorado ruling declaring him ineligible for the presidency there. The nation's highest court has never ruled on a case involving Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was adopted in 1868 to prevent former Confederates from returning to office after the Civil War, but has rarely been used since then. Some legal scholars <clears throat> say the post-Civil War clause applies to Trump for his role in trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election and encouraging his backers to storm the U.S. Capitol after he lost to Democrat Joe Biden. Dozens of cases were filed around the country seeking to bar Trump from the presidency under Section 3. The Colorado case is the only one that succeeded in court. And now an article on immigration. GOP works to boot secretary. Republicans want to impeach Mayorkas over border issues. House Republicans have worked into the night Tuesday on a key vote toward impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over a, quote, willful and systematic, close quote, refusal to enforce immigration laws as border security becomes a top 2024 election issue. 
The Homeland Security Committee spent all day debating two articles of impeachment against Mayorkas, a rare charge against a cabinet official unseen in nearly 150 years, as Republicans make GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump's hardline deportation approach to immigration their own. The actions and decisions of Secretary Mayorkas have left us with no other option but to proceed with articles of impeachment, Chairman Mark Green, a Republican from Tennessee, said. The articles charge that Mayorkas, quote, refused to comply with federal immigration laws, close quote, amid a record surge of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, and that he, quote, breached the public trust, close quote, in his claims to Congress that the border is secure. A committee vote expected later in the night after lawmakers slogged through amendments would send the articles to the full House for a vote as soon as next week. Mayorkas wrote a letter to the committee that it should be working with the Biden administration to update the nation's broken and outdated immigration laws for the 21st century and an era of record global migration. We need a legislative solution, and only Congress can provide it, Mayorkas said. Rarely has a cabinet member faced impeachment's bar of high crimes and misdemeanors, and Democrats on the panel called the proceedings a stunt and a sham that could set a chilling precedent for other civil servants snared in policy disputes with lawmakers who disagree with the president's approach. This is a terrible day for the committee the United States Constitution, and our great country, said Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi, the committee's ranking Democrat. The House's proceedings are taking place as Senators and Mayorkas work on what could be the most consequential bipartisan immigration proposal in a decade, or it could collapse in political failure as Republicans and some Democrats run from the effort. And now an article entitled, Musk Says First Human Received Brain Implant. Details on Billionaire's Neuralink Patient Interface Remain Gant. According to Elon Musk, the first human received an implant from his computer brain interface company, Neuralink, over the weekend. In a Monday post on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, Musk said that the patient received the implant the day prior and was recovering well. The billionaire who co-founded Neuralink did not provide details about the patient. When Neuralink announced in September that it would begin recruiting people, the company said it was searching for individuals with quadriplegia. There are more than 40 other brain-computer interface trials underway, according to clinicaltrials.gov. Neuralink did not immediately respond to requests for comments on Tuesday. Neuralink previously announced that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved its investigational device exemption, which generally allows a sponsor to begin a clinical study in patients who fit the inclusion criteria, the FDA said on Tuesday. It's unclear how well this or similar interfaces will work or how safe they might be. Clinical trials are designed to collect data on safety and effectiveness. 
And finally, an article entitled, Biden says he decided on response to attack. He says he doesn't want war with Iran, but offers no details. President Joe Biden on Tuesday indicated he decided how to respond after the killing of three American service members Sunday in a drone attack in Jordan that his administration pinned on Iraq-based militia groups, saying he does not want to expand the war in the Middle East, but demurring on specifics. U.S. officials said they are still determining which of several Iran-backed groups was responsible for the first killing of American troops in a wave of attacks against U.S. forces in the region since the Hamas-led October 7 assault on Israel. Biden plans to attend the dignified transfer to mark the fallen troops' return to American soil on Friday. When asked by reporters if he decided on a response, he said he did and indicated he wanted to prevent further escalation. I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East, Biden said at the White House before departing for a fundraising trip to Florida. That's not what I'm looking for. It was not immediately clear whether Biden meant he decided on a specific retaliatory plan. A U.S. official said the Pentagon is still assessing options to respond to the attack in Jordan. And now we turn to the reading of the messenger for January 31, 2023. On the front page, the principal article is entitled Securing Our Schools, Former Police Chief Making Impact in New Role. Roger Porter has learned plenty about his new role as the Fort Dodge Community School District's Director of Safety and Security during his first six-plus months on the job. There's one consistent similarity to his former position as the Fort Dodge Chief of Police, though. Porter knows to always expect the unexpected. I have an office at the middle school, he said. That's where people can get a hold of me, but I am never there. It's a lot like when I worked for the police department. I come in with a plan for the day, or knowing what I want to do, but by 8.30 in the morning, those plans are usually put on the side and I am off doing something else. Porter retired as chief of police in April of 2023. He joined the Fort Dodge Community School District team on May 3 and officially started as Director of Safety and Security on July 1. Going into the position, I knew there were some expectations of what the district wanted the job to be. As I got into it, I started recognizing some other things that need to be on my plate as well, said Porter. It's different now, though, because I have bosses. I meet with Superintendent Josh Porter and Executive Director of Educational Services Aaron Davidson on a regular basis. If something comes up that I feel needs addressed, I run it by them and they give me a yes or no. Porter admitted when he started on July 1 and school was not in session, he wasn't used to the downtime. Now he knows that period of adjustment was beneficial, as he became more familiar with the requirements and responsibilities that quickly arrive with the start of the school year. I knew there were bigger projects that needed to be done, he said. 
There were a lot of things that people were doing before I took the position that weren't necessarily part of their job. Porter first went right to work on revamping the district's emergency response plans. He said some schools didn't realize the district had certain plans in place while some had outdated documents. I wanted to clean that up and make sure no one is using something that's old, Porter said. Each building has basically its own plan. It was similar, but each of them could carve it toward their own building. That was one thing I wanted to get completed. So everyone had one Bible for those things, and they had one guide. Administrators in each building have some leeway to run their buildings, but there were certain things within the district that needed to be standardized. In addition to taking on that project, Porter has accomplished many other goals during his brief time on the job, improving the district communication system, completing response training with building secretaries, training in all the buildings and a number of other areas. One of the most noticeable changes Porter helped implement is one-way entries to the elementary school buildings. All students must now enter the buildings through the same doors. There hasn't been much negative response to that, Porter said. Porter has also worked to add additional signage throughout the district, collaborate with city and county law enforcement and other officials, and create a data database for sexual offenders, trespass orders, investigations, and search and seizure. Porter's position includes investigation and resolution of complaints of bullying, harassment, sexual discrimination, and abuse of students by staff. Fort Dodge Community School District Superintendent Josh Porter called the hiring a blessing to our district. Not only were we able to hire someone with an extremely high level of expertise, but creating the position allowed us to offer support differently than we have in the past from preschool through 12th grade, Josh Porter said. Roger has jumped into the position and helped us create something dynamic, increasing the safety for students and staff. We're very thankful for his hard work and dedication and the ideas he continues to bring to the table. The security and safety of our students and staff is the most important thing we have to have in place, first and foremost. We're very thankful for our school board supporting the transition this year. Roger Porter also has big picture projects in mind. He is currently working with district leadership to write a safety and security grant, which would bring in additional funds for door locks, communications, and a few other items. We'd be able to add additional cameras and work to get where we can have just one key that opens doors in the district, Porter said. Right now, you need about 27. We'd be able to offer some additional training as well. Thanks to Porter's recommendation, the district added an emergency radio system that allows buildings to communicate directly with law enforcement. Leaders from a building are able to immediately contact law enforcement. Responding officers then know which building and which entrance to enter. A similar system was used in the recent school shooting in Perry. 
administrators at the building were immediately communicating with local law enforcement, which then contacted the school. My first thought when Perry happened was, now it's really close to home, Porter said. Part of me knew it could impact happen in Iowa. So now it's something we need to collectively work to prevent. In the aftermath of the Perry tragedy, Porter said the district will once again be conducting drills in the schools. The lockdown safety drill will be held at 9 a.m. February 22 in all schools. Each building will have the drill at the same time. An informational meeting for parents will be held at 6 p.m. February 19 in the Fort Dodge Middle School Auditorium. I really encourage parents to show up because I am sure there are questions they don't know the answers to, and I'd rather be able to answer them face-to-face, he said. We'd rather have people base their feelings on this discussion versus something they read on Facebook. He said information on the drills and the parent meeting will be announced soon. Porter has learned school districts are adding a similar position to his. He has joined a group dedicated to safety in schools and has networked with others who share the same responsibilities within their respective districts. There are a lot more than I originally knew, Porter said. A lot are similar in that they are retired law enforcement as well. I was surprised by how many districts offered a similar role. Also on the front page, an article entitled Supervisors Receive Comp Board's Salary Recommendation. The Compensation Board has recommended 9.5% salary increases in fiscal year 2025 for the Webster County Sheriff, Recorder, Auditor, Treasurer, and Attorney. The Compensation Board recommended no increase for the Supervisors and the Supervisors' Chairperson. The Board of Supervisors received that recommendation Tuesday morning. Obviously, these recommendations do not take the budget into account because the Board views its role as making a recommendation that we think is appropriate in light of the work done by our elected officials and taking into account things like inflation, cost of cost of insurance, and the place our elected officials slot in comparison to similarly situated counties, said Compensation Board Chairman Nick Cochran. So we make these recommendations fully aware that that it is up to this body to fit them into the county's budgeting process. The Compensation Board's recommendation is simply a recommendation and is not binding for the Board of Supervisors as it sets the county's budget. Last year, the Board of Supervisors decided to slash the recommendation percentages by half. The initial recommendation from the Compensation Board ranged from increases of 4.72% to 9.63%. The proposal for the amended lower increases for fiscal year 2024 passed on a 3-2 vote. At the time, Supervisor Bob Toad, Thode, stated he would vote against the proposal because he wasn't made aware of the Compensation Board's meeting where the recommendations were initially discussed, and he did not have a representative at the meeting. Supervisor Austin Hayek 
said he would vote no because he felt the supervisor's salary increases should have been cut to zero at a cost sa- as a cost savings measure. As the Board of Supervisors progresses through budget season, it will take the Compensation Board's recommendation into account and will approve the elected officials' salaries at an upcoming meeting following a public budget hearing. In other business, the board also approved an agreement with the Iowa Department of Transportation to allow the use of County Roads P-43, P-61, and P-46 as temporary detour routes while the DOT completes a pair of projects later this year. The DOT will be replacing two pipe culverts in rural Webster County over the summer, One is located at the intersection of U.S. Highway 169 and County Road D68 near Lanyon, south of Harcourt, and the other is just west of the intersection of Highway 169 and Oak Avenue between Harcourt and Dayton. Webster County engineer Jamie Joel said it's pretty common for Iowa DOT projects to use county roads as detour routes. He added that when the project is complete, the DOT will pay a, quote, nominal amount, close quote, to the county for the use of those roads. The project is expected to run from July 1 to October 1. Back to the front page, we find an article entitled, Sexton Launches Bid for Sixth Term. State Representative Mike Sexton formally announced on Tuesday that he is seeking his sixth term in the Iowa House of Representatives. It has been an honor to serve my district in the State House, the Republican from Rockwell City said. I work hard to listen to my constituents and represent their values in the House, he added. I believe I am still the best person for this job, and I am thrilled to announce my bid for re-election. Sexton Representatives represents... House District 7, which includes Calhoun, Pocahontas, and Sac counties, plus western Webster County. He is a farmer and small business owner. He and his wife, Becky, have five children and 13 grandchildren. The lawmaker graduated from Rockwell City High School and earned an associate degree from Iowa Lakes Community College. Sexton was a state senator from 1999 to 2003. Leaving the Senate, he served on the Rockwell City, that is, after leaving the Senate, he served on the Rockwell City, Lytton, and South Central Calhoun school boards. He was first elected to the Iowa House of Representatives in 2014. Currently, he is chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. So far, he is the only person to declare their candidacy in House District 7. And now, finally on the front page, an article entitled, or under the headline, Taking Center Stage, with Karch Smith. Sound of music. Being around music has sprouted a love for the art. It was easy for Karch Smith to find music as a passion. Both his parents, Tara Smith and Jeremy Smith, are music teachers. His mother is the Fort Dodge Middle School band teacher, and his father is the director of athletic bands at Iowa Central Community College. With music surrounding him, it was just natural for him to pick up an instrument at Fort Dodge Senior High. Even if they didn't take part in music, I would still be playing. 
Smith said, they teach me to try hard in everything, have good morals, and stand for what you believe in. Smith plays the trumpet in the All-American Fort Dodge Marching Band and also in jazz band. Smith is a section leader for the marching band. He is also a member of the Fort Dodge baseball team. Baseball has been a big part of Smith's life and continues to be a big part. I love the toughness baseball brings out, Smith said. I also like how much it makes you think, and it's very fun. During his baseball career, Smith had to have surgery, but he will also remember that moment as one of his favorites. The first game after my hip surgery was very memorable, Smith said. I had to battle back and work to get back on the field. Being involved in music and sports has helped Smith gain a new perspective. It has been great to be involved in both, Smith said. I have met new people and have been able to make more friends. Smith has also put his hand to pen for the Little Dodger newspaper at Fort Dodge Senior High. John McBride, Little Dodger teacher, is fun to be around, Smith said. Being on the Little Dodger helps me learn more about the sports I cover. Along with his parents, Smith has been guided by his family. My grandpa has taught me a lot, Smith said. He has taught me hard work, and to get what you want, you have to earn it. After high school, Smith plans on attending the University of Iowa in Iowa City to study biology. Next, we have the Messenger editorial, entitled, Corn Still Fuels Iowa's Economy. Our state leads the way with this vital crop. Corn production has been a key factor in the Iowa economy for more than 150 years. The state's 21st century economy is characterized by increasing diversity. Agriculture, however, remains a powerhouse. There can be little doubt that corn remains of critical importance. The renewable fuels industries have increased demand for corn as a critical ingredient in manufacturing ethanol. Ethanol production has not only increased demand for corn, but also strengthened corn's already enormous importance to Iowa's prosperity. Iowa leads the nation in ethanol production, with 52% of the corn grown in Iowa going to create nearly 30% of all American ethanol. Corn is in more than 4,000 grocery store items, including shampoo, toothpaste, chewing gum, marshmallows, crayons, and paper. In Webster County, corn is big business. In addition to the roughly 200,000 acres planted in corn every year by county farmers, there are major industrial facilities that add value to the corn by processing it into other products. The Cargill plant west of Fort Dodge in the industrial park, called Iowa's Crossroads of Global Innovation, turns corn into a handful of products. The Valero Renewables plant in that same industrial park and the Poet Biorefining plant near Gowrie make ethanol. Corn has been king in Iowa for generations. It seems likely to remain so well into the 21st century. Corn growers have been a vital part of the Iowa economy throughout the state's history, 
and are certain to remain so far into the future. And now on page five, we find an article entitled County Supervisors Here Update from UDMO, that is the Upper Des Moines Opportunity, Inc. Upper, Upper Des Moines Opportunity, Inc. is seeking a steady increase each year of people needing assistance in Webster County, according to the agency's executive director. UDMO Executive Director Julie Edwards gave an update on Tuesday of how UDMO served Webster County residents over the last year and requested $23,750 in financial support from the county. County funding goes directly to client services to assist individuals in need, specifically in Webster County, Edward Edwards said. In fiscal year 2023, UDMO served 5,376 households, including 11,514 individuals in Webster County, and provided $1,586,488.30 in services. UDMO services range from emergency services and utility assistance programs to housing assistance, food programs, senior programs, and weatherization. The agency also has special projects like back-to-school events and bikes for tykes. The agency's biggest costs in Webster County are the emergency utility assistance programs, In fiscal year 23, UDMO provided $1,147,115.10 in those services in Webster County. That is an increase of more than $200,000 for the same services in fiscal year 2021. You can see the dollars that we're putting into your county are going up, Edwards said. You can see the individuals we are serving is going up steadily. UDMO served roughly 1,400 more individuals in fiscal year 23 than in fiscal year 21. Edwards also gave the numbers for fiscal year 2023, but noted that the data was skewed because UDMO was able to use funding from the American Rescue Plan Act She said the fiscal year 21 data is more indicative of a normal year. UDMO also operates a food pantry in the community. In fiscal year 23, there was nearly $168,000 worth of donated food or monetary donations that went to support the food pantry. Edwards also noted that UDMO is looking for monetary donations to go toward general operations expenses for the agency's offices. Because of lower funding levels for these expenses, UDMO offices in smaller counties have had to reduce hours and staffing, something Edwards noted could happen to the Fort Dodge office as well. Board of Supervisors Chairwoman Nikki Conrad said the board should take UDMO's funding requests under consideration as the board works through the county budget process. And finally, an article entitled Bill to Strengthen Farmland Ownership 
reporting gets early bipartisan nod. A trio, trio of state senators, two Republicans and one Democrat, recommended a bill Tuesday put forth by Governor Kim Reynolds that would tighten reporting requirements for land that is owned or leased by foreigners. I think this is a great piece of legislation that's going to advance our understanding of who our neighbors are, said Senator Dan Zumba, a Republican from Ryan, and I think all of us need to know who they are, when currently that might be a little in question. Senate Study Bill 3113 would require companies or individuals of another country to reveal more information about their ownership, allow the state attorney general to subpoena that information, and would stiffen penalties for those who fail to file timely and accurate ownership reports with the state. Iowa already restricts foreign control of its agricultural land. In 2022, foreign landholders were about 514,000 acres, less than 2% of the state's total, according to U.S. Department of Agriculture data, and most of those acres were leased for wind and solar farms. But the issue has been taken up by state and federal lawmakers and Republican presidential candidates who have targeted China as a threat for taking control of U.S. farmland. Last year, former President Donald Trump warned in a video released by his campaign of China's influence in the United States, including buying up our farmland. To protect our country, Trump said, we need to enact aggressive new restrictions on Chinese ownership of any vital infrastructure in the United States, including energy, technology, telecommunications, farmland, natural resources, medical supplies, and other strategic national assets. Syngenta Seeds, LLC, a Chinese-owned company, has about 265 acres of cropland in Boone County, according to the USDA's 2022 data. Canadian investors had Iowa land holdings that total about 199,000 acres. Nationally, Canada's share of land holdings was the largest and was nearly 60 times that of China. The Iowa Senate bill requires foreigners to provide basic identifying information about themselves, their reason for acquiring land holdings, and a list of those holdings in other states that total more than 250 acres. Updates to that reporting are required biannually. It would empower the Attorney General to subpoena a wide range of records, including purchase agreements, correspondence, and memos, to determine when foreigners are complying with those requirements. Also, the bill would increase penalties for noncompliance, fines of up to 2.5% of the property value, and $10,000 in penalties for failures to file periodic reports. I am happy to sign this today, said Senator Don Driscoll, a Republican from Williamsburg, I think that this is a great legislation proposed by the governor. Driscoll and Zumba were joined by Senator Todd Taylor, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, in recommending the bill for further consideration in the Senate. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette and the Messenger for January 31, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening.